Have you ever left someone in charge of something only to come back and find it broken with the person swearing they never touched it? Did you believe them? Have you ever been the victim who was accused of an action you can swear in your life that you never did, yet blamed for it because all the evidence says otherwise? Well, something like that happened back in April of 1979, only it involved a large passenger jet and there were 89 people's lives at stake. Welcome back to Air Scare Stories. Today we'll be looking at the TWA Flight 841 incident. It's a beautiful Wednesday evening at John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York City, and TWA Flight 841 is scheduled to make a trip to Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Captain Harvey Glenn Gibson is 44 years old with over 15,710 flight hours under his belt. First Officer Kennedy is 40 years of age with 10,336 flight hours to his name. Flight Engineer Banks was the youngest of the crew, age 37, with 4,180 hours to his credit. Together, they make up a very capable crew, well fit to fly the 13-year-old Boeing 727, which on this day had 82 passengers and seven crew members on board. After being delayed at JFK for about 45 minutes due to traffic congestion at the airport, TWA Flight 841 finally lifts off the runway at about 8.25 p.m. By 8.54 p.m., Flight 841 has already reached a cruising altitude of 35,000 feet and continues there for a while. The pilots are experiencing headwinds of up to 100 knots at this point, which is slowing them down significantly. So they get in touch with Toronto Center, asking if any pilots have experienced similarly strong winds at 39,000 feet. The response is negative, so they ask permission to climb up to 39,000 feet to avoid the strong headwinds. By 9.38 p.m., they reach that altitude, and for the next 540 miles, the flight's pretty normal with nothing out of the ordinary happening. By this point, the plane is cruising near the city of Saginaw in Michigan, and the autopilot is still set to altitude hold mode, which unsurprisingly is supposed to hold the plane at a set altitude. About nine minutes later, as the captain was sorting through the maps and charts in his flight bag, he's interrupted by a weird buzzing sensation, which quickly escalated to a light buffeting. When he looks up at his flight instruments, he's horrified at what he sees. Even though the autopilot has the control wheel turned to the left, the plane has all of a sudden begun an unexplained and uncommanded steep roll to the right. He immediately disconnects the autopilot and applies full left aileron and left rudder control in an attempt to bring the plane back to a wings level attitude, but even that didn't work. At this point, the captain can see that they're about to roll over, so he sets the throttles to idle and warns the crew, saying something like, we're going over. Have you ever had a dream where you're falling out of control, then you suddenly jump up as you're jolted awake? Imagine having that dream, except this time you're the captain of a passenger plane rolling over and diving toward the ground at breakneck speed. And also, it's not a dream. The plane dove almost 34,000 feet in just 63 seconds, rolling through 360 degrees twice and exceeding the Mach limit for the plane's airframe. With such chaos going on and the airplane performing maneuvers it was never meant to, the pilots were experiencing incredible forces on their bodies and were in danger of losing consciousness. But at around 15,000 feet, the captain ordered the landing gear be extended in a last-ditch effort to slow down the plane's descent. When the first officer moved the landing gear lever to the extended position, they heard a loud bang, similar to an explosion. But soon the airspeed began to slow and the captain was finally able to roll the plane to a wings-level attitude and stop the descent, just 5,000 feet above the ground. 
After finally regaining control of the plane, the crew quickly decided it would be best to attempt an emergency landing because, aside from the already obvious reasons, they noticed they had inexplicably lost some hydraulic fluid as well, which is essential for the control of the airplane. After declaring an emergency over the radio, air traffic control directed them to the nearby Detroit Metropolitan Airport in Michigan. The cockpit crew then performed their emergency checklist procedures and informed the cabin crew to prepare the passengers for an emergency landing. You can imagine the atmosphere back there. After the plane had already completely rolled over twice and dropped 34,000 feet in one minute, I'm sure some people had already said their final prayers and were surprised they were still alive. To then hear that they'd have to prepare for an emergency landing would have probably just taken the horror to a whole new level. Back in the cockpit, the crew wasn't sure if the landing gear had fully extended or if it had even extended at all. So they decided that they should make a low pass over the airport to have the controllers in the tower do a visual inspection with their binoculars to determine the status of the landing gear. However, when the captain extended the flaps to make an approach, the plane rolled sharply to the left. So he called for the flaps to be retracted and decided that they'd have to make the approach and landing without flaps. This would be a somewhat risky maneuver as flaps are normally used to slow down an airplane for landing. Upon confirming that the gear did appear to be extended and locked by the air traffic controller's visual inspection, they then made a wide loop out and lined up with the runway. Because they couldn't use any flaps or slats, they had to land the plane at a speed that was more than 100 miles per hour faster than the plane's typical landing speed. But the landing was successful and there were no fatalities, an incredible display of the captain and his crew's flying expertise and mastery. But what exactly happened up there? How could a plane that was flying straight and level suddenly go into a spiral and nosedive? Well, the account you just heard me narrate was that of the two pilots on board. The National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, however, wasn't convinced that that was the full story. They felt there had to be more at play here. Also, the pilots' accounts merely described what had happened, but it didn't explain why. So the NTSB launched a full investigation. Early on, the NTSB was puzzled as to what the probable cause of this incident was. In reviewing the damage to the plane, the investigators realized that leading edge slat number 7 was completely missing from the right wing. Slats are parts that extend from the leading edge of the wing and allow the plane to generate more lift at lower speeds, just like the flaps do on the trailing edge. In fact, the flaps and slats are operated together through the same control. When the flaps are extended, the slats automatically extend too. Boeing was called on to inspect the slat assembly to determine if it had failed and what may have caused the damage and separation of slat number 7. They concluded that the slats must have been extended while the aircraft was flying at cruising speed. Given that the slats aren't designed to extend at that speed, the investigators found this troubling. Various tests were carried out to determine if this were possible due to a mechanical failure, but it turns out that there were two safety systems in place, and both of them would have had to have failed at the same time for an unscheduled slat deployment to have occurred. This could only mean one thing. There must have been some manipulation of the slat controls in the cockpit. The investigators began to suspect foul play, that is, that the crew, or at least one of the pilots, had intentionally commanded the extension of the flaps and slats mid-flight. They believed that the pilots had set the trailing edge flaps to 2 degrees during high-altitude crews, and then may have pulled the circuit breaker for the slats so that they wouldn't simultaneously activate. But why would they do such a thing when it was so potentially dangerous? Especially when they knew that the flaps and slats of a plane were only meant to be deployed at low speeds during takeoff or landing. Well, it had been rumored among pilots that using such a configuration could help to increase lift with little to no increase in drag, which would allow for more speed, higher altitude, and decreased fuel consumption. In simpler terms, they were probably trying to shave a few minutes off their ETA and get to their destination faster. 
The investigators determined that both the flaps and slats had been extended during flight, and the only reason the plane ended up rolling to the right was that the number seven leading edge slat had failed to retract. They believed that slats two, three, six, and seven had all been fully or partially extended and then retracted later, while all but number seven retracted, which the investigators discovered was due to a pre-existing misalignment. The NTSB stated that this couldn't have occurred because of a mechanical failure and that it must have been done by the flight crew on purpose. They ran hundreds of flight simulation tests to confirm this, but the crew, however, were adamant that they hadn't touched the flap controls at all during the flight. Captain Gibson said, At no time prior to the incident did I take any action within the cockpit, either intentionally or inadvertently, that would have caused the extension of the leading edge slats or the trailing edge flaps. Nor did I observe any other crew member take any action within the cockpit, either intentional or inadvertent, which would have caused the extension. But the NTSB still wasn't convinced. The crew further argued that an actuator on slat number seven might have failed, which would have resulted in its uncommanded deployment. They argued that such failures had happened before on other 727s before their incident. But the NTSB was quick to point out that those incidents happened at a time when records considering the flight crew's involvement in deploying the slats weren't taken. Hence, they couldn't be used as a defense. Records after 1974, however, made room for such inclusions, but only two cases had been recorded by the time of the TWA Flight 841 incident. And out of those two cases, one actually was inadvertently caused by the flight's crew. So these didn't help their case much either. In their final report, the NTSB concluded that the flight crew was responsible for the incident. The probable cause was stated as the mechanical failure of leading edge slat number seven to retract after inappropriate extension by the flight crew and the captain's delayed reaction to the right-hand roll due to the slat asymmetry. As you can imagine, this did not sit well with the captain, and he appealed the case twice. He first appealed to the NTSB itself, and when his petition was rejected, he went on to appeal to the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, where it was also rejected for the lack of new evidence, as well as the court's lack of jurisdiction due to the NTSB's, and I quote, unreviewable discretion. Whatever that means. Another big issue with the pilot's accounts is that apparently 21 minutes of the cockpit voice recorder's 30-minute tape was found to be blank. This made the investigators feel that the pilots may have been hiding something. It might have just been considered another mechanical fault if only the captain hadn't admitted to regularly erasing the CVR tapes on planes that he piloted. He argued that he typically erased the tapes to avoid the conversations being used inappropriately or taken out of context. However, he emphatically stated that he did not remember erasing them on this flight. Although he was never criminally prosecuted, Captain Gibson lost much of his reputation and nothing he ever did could reinstate it. His friends and colleagues accused him of dereliction of duty for putting the safety of his passengers at risk and held him responsible for the incident. He eventually resigned from TWA and started teaching business at a local business school, but he was never the same after the incident. In the words of his wife, I knew that he in many ways had really died on that aircraft. In 2022, a documentary reconstructing the events leading up to the incident still put the captain's alleged actions at the center of the cause. Based on evidence gathered and interviews conducted, the NTSB was informed that the flight engineer had been out of the cockpit when the airframe buffeting initially started. The lead flight attendant confirmed that he'd come out to return the used food trays that had been in the cockpit. The investigators theorized that the captain may have taken that opportunity to suggest to the co-pilot to go along with the unauthorized flap extension procedure to reduce their flight time on the trip. They might have then pulled the circuit breakers to prevent the leading edge slats from also extending. On returning to the cockpit, the flight engineer might have noticed that the breaker was out and pushed it back into position without knowing that it had been pulled on purpose by the other two pilots. 
the documentary presenters believe this could have led to the TWA Flight 841 incident. This is, however, just a hypothesis and isn't based on any actual direct evidence. The NTSB does seem to have done a very thorough investigation on this case, including conducting mechanical and metallurgic studies, running exhaustive flight simulations, where each of the slats and flaps are extended and retracted, both individually and in pairs and groups, and even coming up with possible scenarios for an unscheduled deployment of a slat in flight. On the other hand, all three of the pilots swore under oath that they had nothing to do with the extension of slat number seven, and that they were all taken by surprise when the plane began to shudder and then roll over and dive. But then again, you have the impossibility of the slat deploying on its own unless hydraulic pressure had been lost, which didn't happen since they were able to use the hydraulic system to extend the landing gear. And the fact that the copy voice recorder had seemingly been erased. So what do you think happened? Did the pilots try an unauthorized maneuver at cruising altitude to try and shave a few minutes off their flight time and then conspire to lie about it under oath during the investigation? Or did they get railroaded by the NTSB as scapegoats because they couldn't find enough conclusive evidence of a mechanical issue? Or was it something else? Let me know what you think in the comments section. If you like this video and want to help me so I don't have to keep wearing this one same shirt in every single episode, please consider supporting me on Patreon, link in the description. If you want to hear more stories of aviation incidents and accidents, why not hit the like and subscribe buttons? It's free for the next 10 minutes. Is there an aviation story you'd like me to cover? Leave it in the comments section below. Thanks so much for watching, and I'll see you on the next Air Scare Stories.